Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by best-selling author and journalist Dan Gardner, who is the co-author of a must-read new book entitled How Big Things Get Done, The Surprising Factors That Determine the Fate of Every Project, From Home Innovations to Space Exploration and Everything in Between. The book weaves together data, case studies, and a powerful narrative to illuminate modern society's challenges with completing big and small projects on time and on budget, and what we can do about them. I'm grateful to speak with him about the book's insights and analysis, its implications for government policy and society as a whole. Dan, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Oh, thanks very much. I'm happy to be here. Let's start with a scene-setting question. Dan, listeners may be intuitively familiar with the idea that various types of projects, including public and private infrastructure, public and private procurement, etc., seem to be taking longer and costing more. There are various examples ranging from high-profile public transit projects to the rising costs and delayed timelines on the renovations of the parliamentary buildings and, and virtually everything in between, as the book's title alludes. Is that intuition right? Is it indeed the case that projects are generally taking longer and growing more costly? Or is that a, something of a misperception? Uh, well, it's an interesting one. To say that something is taking longer is, of course, a point of comparison. And that would require us to have a very good baseline for how projects were doing across different types uh, in the past. And unfortunately, we don't have that, <laughs> as far as I know. Um, I, so I really wish I could say with some confidence that this is true. Uh, certainly, I probably share that perception. And I think that there are some good reasons for why they might be taking longer, but I don't think we can be confident in saying that. It's also very important to recognize, you know, uh, if you want examples of projects going over budget and over time, there are plenty of historical examples uh, in the past. Uh, you know, we remember the successes, but the failure is plenty of uh, really bad uh, examples in the past. So we can't be confident of that, but what we can be confident of is something that's just as important, which is to say, um, projects make three basic promises. Number one, it's going to cost a certain amount of money. Number two, it's going to take a certain amount of time. And number three, it's going to deliver certain benefits. Passengers moved, uh, units sold, whatever it is. So those three core promises, that's the foundation of any big project. And what we can say, thanks to 30 years of my co-author, Ben Flintbjörg, by the way, I've been working with Ben for years. He's Danish. I still cannot pronounce his surname correctly. I think you have to be a descendant from Vikings to do that. 
Um, and I am not. Um, in any event, Bent Fludbjerg, professor at Oxford University, has been gathering data and producing the world's largest database of big projects over the last 30 years. It's an immense, immense database. And it boils down to um, this, the situation, the status quo today is really bad. And once I give you those numbers, you'll understand how bad. And then I'm going to convince you that, in fact, as bad as it sounds, it's worse than that. Um, so how bad is it? Well, on those three core promises, how many, what percentage of projects come in on budget? It's about 48.5%. Uh, and, and by the way, this is across all project types, across all countries, across and around the world. This is boiling it all down. 48.5% come in on budget. What percentage come in on budget and on time? It's about 8.5%, which is really bad. What percentage of projects come in on budget, on time, and on benefits, which is to say that they deliver on all three of their core promises? That's about 0.5%, which is a rounding error. <laughs> that's, that's, that's really bad. So that's the global track record, and it's bad. And as bad as that sounds, and here's where I'm going to try and convince you that the situation's even worse. Um, I haven't described the magnitude. So if you come in, you know, 3% over budget and 5% over schedule, that's probably not bad. In fact, there are a whole lot of areas where if you come in 3 and 5% over, you would pop the champagne. That would be a huge success. <laughs> um, in fact, what we find is, and what Ben has shown, and this is a very incredibly important insight um, is that for most project types, not all, and this is a very important point, but for most project types, um, the outcomes are not distributed normally. And as a result, you do not have a normal bell curve with thin, short tails on either end, which is to say, if you go over budget, you don't just go a little bit over budget. You're not just at risk of going a little bit over budget. You're at risk of going catastrophically over budget. So you may not just be 10, 5, 10, 15% over budget, you may be 50%, 100%, 200%, 300% over budget. In fact, for many of these project types, uh, they are very fat-tailed, um, and there is no maximum extent. So the risk is not that you're going to be 5, 10, 15% over budget. It's going to be 100%, 300%, 500%, or who knows how high it could go. Some of the projects that we've looked at have been over a thousand percent over budget, which is pretty mind blowing when you think about it. So, basically, if we were to summarize, uh, most projects do not deliver on the three core promises that they make, and they are at risk when they go wrong of going catastrophically wrong. And so, when we're talking about big projects, uh, you know, we're talking about tens of billions, hundreds of billions, depending upon how you define it trillions of dollars at stake we we really can't afford to have that bad a track record we got to do better with this stuff which leads to the question what are the factors that are leading to these delays and cost overruns are they contingent or are there some general explanations that are cross cutting right so that's the the big one so what we tried to do in the book is from the outset Depending upon the project type you're looking at, obviously, IT projects are very different from defense projects are different from energy projects are different from transportation projects. There are specifics to each project type that only are only relevant to those. We do not address those. We address those factors which are effectively universal. It really doesn't matter what the project type is. You see these at work time and time again. 
Um, and, and, and I think it's very important to bear this in mind because the, the, the breadth of the project types that we're talking about is incredibly illuminating because as I say, like, what does an information technology project have to do with, you know, paving roads? It, it should have nothing to do with them. And yet, if you look at the outcomes, statistically, they're very, very similar. So why is that? Well, because there are certain universal factors involved, certain universal elements, and at its most profound level, this single universal element is people, right? It doesn't matter how advanced your technology is. It doesn't matter how ambitious your project is. In every single instance, the one thing that doesn't change is people making decisions. You screw that up, the project goes hell, goes to hell. Um, and you see this over and over and over again. And guess what? We see people screwing up in similar ways across very different project types. And they are ways which uh, would make a, a psychologist smile because <laughs> they actually are in line with what psychologists understand about how human beings make decisions and how those decisions go wrong. Why don't you take that up, Dan? Not only in this book, but in some of your past work, you've dug into neuroscience and human psychology and various other lines of analysis. What's the role of cognitive biases in understanding what causes projects to go over budget and over time? Well, let's try and work backwards to the to the to the psychology piece. What's the pattern we see in the in, in overall in the grand conclusion? What's the pattern we see in failed projects? It is what we call, we try and boil it down to four words. It's Think fast, act slow. And by think fast, what we mean is you engage in quick, superficial planning. And you say, right, that's it. We're ready to go. Shovels in the ground. Everybody get to work. And everybody's very excited because shovels in the ground means you're making progress and the hole's getting bigger. So that's more progress and everything's fantastic and you're racing ahead and it's all swell. And then a problem arises, and then you have to run around and try and figure out how to solve the problem. And while you're doing that, something else goes wrong. And then these multiple, these, 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 these things that are going wrong can collide with each other, like cars on a foggy highway. And before you know it, you get further and further behind, and your progress slows more and more and more. And what starts as a sprint becomes this slow, painful slog. Um, because you engaged in quick and superficial planning. Because if you had thought about it, if you worked more carefully on the problem, you would have discovered not all problems. Life is always full of surprises. Projects always have surprises. But you would have discovered many of these problems in planning. And you could have worked out solutions in planning. And if you had done that, then that wouldn't have been a hiccup in, in the uh, delivery process. So then the question becomes, right, if that's the pattern, think fast, act slow, why do people think fast, right? To tell people, you know, and this is fundamentally the advice of our book is not earth shatteringly counterintuitive. We're saying, slow down, <laughs> think carefully, do careful planning, put a lot of effort into planning. Um, that's not exactly uh, stunningly counter counterintuitive. You know, uh, Abraham Lincoln reputedly said, you know, measure twice, you know, cut once. Um, there was a Roman emperor whose slogan was make haste slowly. <laughs> you know? So this is, it's a Roman emperor, you know, this is old advice, right? So then the question becomes, well, why the heck do we engage in quick and superficial planning if it's so bloody obvious that we should not? 
And our answers on that basically are twofold. There's one, politics, which we can talk about later, but it's two, it's really psychology. Well, really, there's a third one. I should quickly add a third one. Uh, in many organizations, there is a bias toward action, meaning basically planning is considered, you know, talking, yakking. That's not really doing stuff. Doing stuff is shovels in the ground. You know, the hole has to get bigger. That's progress. Um, and so there's a bias towards short shrifting planning and going straight to doing. Um, but basically, the core, the core of this is politics and psychology. And the psychology, if you look at the piece of it, it uh, if everybody's read Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, which is the language that we're using as an homage to to his his book, his great book, his core insight, and the core insight of modern uh, uh, of modern psychology, is that truly inclined to look at a situation, size it up quickly, draw conclusions, form a plan of action, and move on. That's how human beings naturally roll. We are not inclined to look at a situation and say, "Hmm." I think I know what's going on, but I should do further investigation and reflect upon this carefully. That is just not how we're, right? If you look at the, there are good evolutionary reasons why we are inclined towards the quick and dirty move on approach, but that is what we do. And so you can see this manifesting itself when people even tackle big projects where very clearly that sort of quick intuitive judgment is a bad idea. But we do this because, for example, one of the famous uh, psychological biases is optimism bias. So we will consistently underestimate how long a task will take, even if it's a simple task, even if it's a familiar task. Uh, even if you know about optimism bias, you will still underestimate how long it will take to do the task. And why is that? In large part, it happens because we have a habit of mental simulation. So you see yourself doing the task. And you go, okay, that's going to take this long. Uh, yeah, here's my estimate. Well, did you include any interruptions in you doing the task in your mental scenario? Did you include surprises? Did you include the unforeseen? Did you write all those things that intrude upon us in life? No, of course you didn't. What you did is you saw yourself just doing the task without interruption. And therefore, what you effectively saw was a best case scenario. And you've based your estimate on the best case scenario, which is a really bad idea. But again, that's how human beings naturally roll. So there's a whole series of these. Uh, in fact, one of the fundamental uh, concepts uh, that I constantly urge people to remember from Kahneman's work, and it's very, very important here, is this wonderful acronym, uh, WYSIATI, which <laughs> I love it because it's so ugly. <laughs> Wisiati, W-Y-S-I-A-T-I. What you see is all there is. Kahneman's great insight is basically if you're going to make a quick intuitive judgment, you can't afford to say, here's my quick intuitive judgment uh, subject to the possibility that there's other information I'm not aware of. You can't do that. You have to just use whatever information you happen to have available to you at this time. Make your judgment. Be confident. You're done. Right. So WYSIATI, what you see is all there is, is really hardwired into us. And the idea that, you know, what? there may be other stuff I'm not aware of. And before I form a judgment, I should stop and investigate carefully. That is not natural human decision making. And so 
if you if you look at these very very basic mechanisms of human psychology they are all inclined towards saying right i understand what it is i understand what the project's supposed to accomplish i understand what the best way to do it is let's just get on with the work so the psychology is co- compelling us to do the quick and quick, quick and superficial planning and get on with the work now you combine that with politics politics here i'm using the term broadly this is for you know resources who gets what um so actually to start with politicians um it, this often happens quick and superficial planning can be very useful for you as a as a politician say you want to get a project approved but you know that there's going to be a lots of opposition what do you want you want a forecast that says this is going to be very cheap and quick right what's the best way to get a forecast that says it's going to be cheap and quick well that's with cheap and quick and superficial planning right you're not interested in accuracy. You want approval. So you want that lowball figure. You get your approval. And then what do you do? You want to get shovels in the ground going as fast as possible and get that hole as big as possible, as quickly as possible. So that in future, if you're not the person in charge, whoever is in charge will not be able to pull the plug because then they have to swallow the sunk costs. And that's another psychological problem that human beings have. And politically, it's impossible to swallow some costs. So you know, if I can get this project going right away and we get a hole big enough, then whoever my my, my successors are, they'll be stuck with it. They'll have to see it through. And you see that time after time after time in projects. The Sydney Opera House is one of the most dramatic examples of this. Sydney Opera House ended up going 1,600% over budget. Um, and largely because the politician in charge very deliberately engaged in this sort of calculation. But it's, and of course, it's not just politicians. It's also corporations, right? If you're a large construction company and you want the giant project to go ahead, you want a piece of that pie, then what do you want? You want the figures to be low. Uh, and, 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 and if that means that down the road, you have to discover that there are further problems, oh, that you didn't anticipate, quotation marks, um then well we can deal with that then and we can talk to our lawyers and we can sue for further compensation etc and this is the you know a standard pattern so what you have is you have a whole bunch of players in the system who have a self-interest in quick and superficial planning you have human psychology which inclines us towards quick and superficial planning and as a result you get a deluge of quick and superficial planning there's so much there to unpack Dan, and I want to come back to the seen versus the unseen in a moment. But let's just stay on the subject of project planning. In light of the interaction between politics and cognitive biases, the book argues for what you call the need to go from left to right. Uh, What does that mean? What's the key insight there? So thinking from left to right means that, uh, uh, sorry, sorry, right to left. Um, (laughs) Let me clarify this. Go right back to the very beginning of a project. What is the project? What are we going to do? Think about how the genesis of most projects is. You know, you can imagine a scenario where somebody pipes up and says, you know, if you live on an island, uh, we should build a bridge to the mainland. Okay. And then people talk about it. They say, well, where would the bridge go? How big would the bridge be? What would go across the bridge? How much would it cost? Right. Stop right? Already, you're way too far down the process. The very first thing you should be talking about is why? (laughs) What is it that we hope? We don't build bridges to have bridges. We build bridges in order to deliver certain benefits. What are the benefits? 
explore those, develop those, have a full and explicit appreciation of what those benefits are that you see. And only then should you then turn to the means to achieve those benefits, right? Now, if you think about a, a Gantt chart, which is, or all of its equivalent, uh, it, uh, it's basically a project chart, you know, project management tool, which basically says, you know, here's a flow chart. Here's the things that we have to do. And here's when we have to do them one thing after another until you get to the final box on the right. And the final box on the right is the happy thing has been built and you are getting all these good benefits and that's sweet. So what we say is at the very beginning of the project, we say, no, don't talk about bridges. Don't talk about any of this other stuff. Don't talk about costs. Why? Ask why. What's in the box on the right that you hope to accomplish? And we tell the story of Frank Gehry in the book. Um, Frank Gehry is a master of this. People think that Frank Gehry is this mad artist that people go to and you hand him a blank check and he delivers some crazy building that nobody's ever seen before. Um, and it costs a fantastic amount. In fact, Frank Gehry could not be more different than that. Um, we, we interviewed him on multiple occasions and he, he's a fascinating, fascinating guy. But one of his superpowers is, is his ability to ask questions and listen. And so the very first thing that Frank Gehry does when people come into him is then they routinely come into him with a project idea in mind. Here is what I want you to build, Frank. And he says, why? And then they have conversations about who the client is, what their goals are in life. And, and then he tries to get a sense, a real sense, a meaningful sense of what is it exactly that you want to accomplish here. And there are multiple examples where Frank Gehry transformed the nature of a project because he started with that conversation. So Gehry's uh, career, he was, he was a respected and successful architect into his early 60s. But then he gets vaulted to the status of uh, the global elite because of the Bilbao Guggenheim, uh, which is this gorgeous masterpiece of a building that he builds in northern Spain in a, in a city called Bilbao that nobody had heard of outside of Spain um, before Frank Gehry. And, but what people don't know about that story is that people came to him, the regional officials from the government uh, the, of the Basque region, they came to him and they said, we, we, want, we have a project we want you to do. He said, what is it? And they said, we want you to renovate this old building in the center of Bilbao and make it a, a suitable art gallery for the Guggenheim. And he said, oh, okay, that's interesting. Well, tell me why you want me to do that. And then it turned out that basically it's because Bilbao was the Detroit of Spain. Uh, their heavy industry was gone, and this was basically an economic development. They needed to divert some of the tourists from the southern Spanish tourist trade to the north, uh, they wanted to bring in artists, all that sort of thing. And this is, this is the flagship. Well, now Gary has the sense, oh, I see what you're trying to accomplish. And then he goes to Bilbao. He takes a look at the site and he says, look, it's a beautiful building you've got identified for this renovation. That's not really suitable. And besides which, is a renovation ever going to achieve what you want it to achieve? He said, no, you need to, to accomplish your actual goal. You need a grand, spectacular building. And oh, by the way, I've identified this place on the river that's pretty dramatic. And, and what you should do instead, I think, to accomplish your goals is to have this big piece of signature architecture, which I will build. And that's the genesis of the Bilbao Guggenheim, which is one of the, one of the most famous buildings in the world. And it's also one of the most successful projects in history, uh, according to the terms of the, the Bilbao officials themselves.
um, because they end up the economic development produced by that one building is absolutely dramatic. I mean, they really, they breathed life back into Bilbao with that one project. But it all started because he asked why. So then he had a clear idea of what's in that box on the right. So number one, by asking what's in the box on the right, you end up with this opportunity to ask, well, what's the really the best way to accomplish that? Because it might be something that we're not thinking of at all right now. It might be something else. But number two, once you have a very clear picture of what's on that, what's in that box on the right, you've now got like a North Star for the whole project. It says, what are we trying to accomplish? That and only that. Let's keep our focus on that. As the project proceeds, as you go through planning, as you go through delivery, everything gets complicated. There are people pulling you in every direction. Everybody wants a piece of the pie. It gets chaotic. It's get, it gets confusing. And it's incredibly easy for the project to be diverted in some way, shape, or form. But if you have a project manager who says, no, that, that. That box at the end of the right, that's what we're aiming for from beginning to end. That helps keep the project on track. Uh, one of the examples we use to illustrate this is Robert Cairo. And this one hits home for me as a writer. Robert Cairo, um, the great, you know, one of the greatest living biographers. He's, you know, legendary for writing these unbelievably complex biographies of people like Robert Moses and, and Lyndon Johnson. And Robert Cairo starts every book exactly the same way. You know, if, remember, if you're Robert Cairo, you don't have to go to a publisher and say, you know, <laughs> here's my proposal for a book. Would you give me a, a check? You know, you're Robert Cairo. They just give you a check. But Cairo does something which authors are basically forced to do when they go to publishers trying to get contracts. He sits down and he says, what am I trying to accomplish with this book? And he literally goes through a period of several weeks in which he agonizes over that. For for That's a very, very tough exercise. If, if you've ever been through it, it's very hard. But he agonizes over it for weeks, and he tries to boil it down to literally two or three sentences. And then when he has those two or three sentences that say, this is the point of the book, then he types those up, and he tapes them on the wall behind his typewriter so that Throughout the entire writing of the book, as he's getting confused and bewildered and he's lost in all this dense information, anytime he's lost, he just looks up and he says, what am I aiming for? That's it. And that pulls him back on track. So that's why we say think right to left. So you're thinking about that, what's in that box on the right at the end, and then you're managing left to right, you know, because that's daily life. You're managing left to right, but you're thinking right to left. Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Wanted to ask for your support today. No, I'm not asking for money. I'm asking for your attention. If you could check out right now in our podcast feed a new series that we're dropping. It's six episodes in partnership with a group called Pathways Alliance. This is the Canadian Industry Association that's tasked with the big, ambitious project of decarbonizing Canada's oil sands. They want to achieve net zero by 2050, and we want to have a conversation with them and you about how to achieve this ambitious goal. Pathways is the hub's first national media and advertising partner. Their support helps us make all these other great podcasts. So if you're enjoying them, please listen to these episodes with Pathways. Give us your feedback 
We'd love your input, but also share them with friends and family. That would be greatly appreciated. Well, with that advertisement over, let's go back to our regular programming. There's a popular tendency to associate project efficiency with almost a dictatorial or authoritarian model. I think, for instance, of the tendency at times to lionize China's ability to get things done, or even the mystique around Donald Trump as a builder. Based on your research, Dan, are these perceptions rooted in fact? Is there evidence that a project management regime that places accountability and authority within a single individual or institution is more prone to success? Let's be careful, um, because the way you phrase the last part, you know, uh, should, you know, an individual or an institution be responsible and have power for the project? The answer there would be, yeah, that's a good idea. Responsibility and power should go together. There should be clarity about the management of the project. But at the beginning of your question, you're talking about dictatorial. Uh, and, and, and so the model there would be, you know, there's there's sort of, you know, the project manager as dictator, as in shut up and do as I say. And just, you know, you don't need to think you just need to obey. And that is absolutely wrong. So and you also mentioned China, by the way, I should mention th- th- I don't think this actually comes up in the book. But Bent actually did some fascinating work on China because you remember, you know, uh, I don't know what it was maybe a a decade ago, a little bit less. It was very, very popular. Everyone was saying, oh, China can build, China can build. Look at all this high-speed rail, high-speed rail forever. And they they got all these towers. They're they're building everything. And so Bent actually, the problem with China is you, you don't actually have the data, right? It's not an open society. You don't actually have the good data. You don't know what's the quality. You don't know the cost. You don't know the time. You don't know. Right. You could, we could build anything today if you pour enough money into it. Right. Uh, or if you're, you know, sufficiently willing to override laws or whatever. So, uh, Bent actually looked at, uh, Chinese project data that involved the IMF because when the IMF was involved, it required that certain, you know, reliable data be produced for its funded projects. And when he looked at that data, he found that they actually weren't terribly impressive. Um, and so the dense general take on the China story is that, yeah, they've built a heck of a lot because they've spent a heck of a lot. Also, we can't be entirely confident about the quality of what they've built. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of corruption. We don't, you know, things fall down. Uh, only over time will quality reveal itself. So there's a large question mark over China and the whole, you know, dictators make getting things done model just doesn't work. Um, a, a far better model that we use in the book is uh, the Heathrow Airport Terminal 5. Airport terminals are notorious uh, uh, projects, particularly for, you, know, you can imagine building a terminal at Heathrow. While Heathrow was still operating, they had to build this enormous uh, uh, terminal and never interrupt operations even for a minute <laughs> and then open it and it's supposed to all work smoothly and you can imagine how big and complex this is it's not just a building it's 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 runways it's all the infrastructure that goes together with it and so on and if you look at that model they had clarity about who was in charge yes as i said you know uh, you had this you know there was a there was a client uh, there was a management team if you said who's in charge it would be very, very clear who's and power and responsibility. You know, they went together hand in hand. That's very important. Um, but the 
other thing that Heathrow had was uh, a, a determined effort from the very beginning to get everybody to understand what the project was, how we're all in it together. We're not working for our separate corporations. We're not working for ourselves. We're working for Terminal 5. Um, and so that understanding of what is it we're trying to accomplish, what are we aiming for, was from top of the organization to the bottom of the organization. And so you had people who were motivated. In other words, what I'm describing is a team. They had a real sense of team. And, and by the way, that actually goes to the very fundamentals of how you design the project, because one of the standard things that happens, you know, this happens in Canada all the time, and it's a big reason why uh, Ottawa LRT turned into such a, a bloody mess, um, is that you, as the client, you want to arrange things so that if something goes wrong, the risk is on somebody else, right? Um, and so one of the standard things is to say, okay, you, the construction consortium or the construction company or whoever um you get this contract congratulations but in the contract it makes clear that you have to deliver by on by a certain time at a certain price and if you don't do that it's all on you and you say well that's terrific because then the risk there's no risk to me as client as the client why wouldn't i arrange things that way uh, and in fact, uh, the Ottawa contract looked like genius when they had a sinkhole that appeared in the city. <laughs> a sinkhole is crazy. And oh my God, that's going to be so expensive. And then it's all, oh, it's all on the contractor. So don't worry about it, citizens of Ottawa. Well, the problem with that model is, is that it puts the interests of the parties against each other. Right? So if something goes wrong, the very first thing a rational person should do is point the finger right if something's gone wrong it's not on me it's on you or it's on that subcontractor or it's on somebody else and after you've pointed that finger the very first thing you should do is you should call your lawyer because you're now going to get into a big fight over whose responsibility this is so instead of the energy and creativity of people being focused on solving the problem, all that energy and creativity and money is now going to lawyers fighting over who's responsible. Well, at that point, you're dead. That project's going to be a mess. So right from the beginning at Terminal 5, what they did was they had contracts that said basically, no, we as the client, if we miss the target, it's on us. So it's only positive incentives. If you hit the targets or if you even come in early, that'd be, that'd be terrific, um, you get bonuses but you're not on the hook if things go wrong. And as a result, guess what happened? Things did go wrong because things always go wrong. And everybody sat down together as a determined team. They came up with solutions and they solved the problem and they kept going. And as a result, Terminal 5 was a huge success. I mentioned, Dan, that we would come back to the subject of seen versus unseen. I want to bring the conversation to that now. The book outlines that one of the opportunity costs of projects that run longer than projected and cost more than projected is the opportunity cost of scarce resources being dedicated to fewer projects as a result. Do you want to talk a bit about the unseen costs of the failure of these types of projects? Yeah, this is one of my favorite themes. Thank you for that. Um, look, look, when people talk about, you know, you know, could we increase project efficiency by 30%? It sounds like, okay, that sounds like a worthy goal, but who aside from accountants really cares, right? It's not 30% improvement, who cares? 
Well, people routinely, and again, this is understandable from a psychological perspective, what people routinely do is they miss the opportunity costs, right? Um, so if you go and you spend three times more for what you could have had at one third the cost, um, well, what could you have done with that money? It, it, it's really that simple. You know, when a project goes five times over budget, well, guess what? There's a whole lineup of projects that could have been built that won't be now or whatever other use you have for that money. Um, the most dramatic example of this, and this is, and this is why it, it requires imagination uh, to see this. And, and unfortunately, we, we too often lack that imagination. But there's a really horrible, horrible, sad example in the Sydney Opera House. I mentioned the Sydney Opera House. When you say the Sydney Opera House, everyone thinks, well, that's one of the world's most famous buildings. That's a great success, right? Um, and of course, you know, if it went 1600% over budget, I don't care because I'm not Australian. <laughs> you know, I, di I didn't pay for it. What? So, so it was a marvel. It's a wonder. Good for you. This is terrific. We're, we're thrilled to have that. And I understand that point. But can you tell me the name of the man who designed the Sydney Opera House? Right. One of the world's most famous buildings. Nobody ever knows his name. His name was Jordan another day. Um, he was about 38, 39 years old when he won the design competition to design uh, the Sydney Opera House. And he, he had these amazing sketches. They were just these beautiful, graceful sketches. And people were blown away. And they said, yes, congratulations, you get this. Well, then they said to him, so now it, the, these sketches are lovely, but they're just sketches. Now go do a proper plan. Well, the problem was at that point, he hadn't, you know, what's this thing going to be made of? How is it going to be constructed? Is it engineering? You know, in engineering terms, is it sound even? He hadn't worked on any of that. They had no idea how to build any of that, right? Which all would be fine if they had simply said, okay, well, Yarn, congratulations. It's a great vision, but go off and figure out how to do it. And we'll wait until you come back, right? Which would be a sensible thing to do. So he does go off. He does learn how to do it, but it takes him years to eventually crack the puzzle. And in the meantime, remember I told you about the, the politician who decided he was going to rush ahead? This was the Sydney Opera House was the legacy project of a politician named Joe Cahill, who was a longtime office holder, who had been diagnosed with cancer, and he wanted legacy with a capital L. And so he said, we're going to build an opera house. So they awarded this prize to Euron Utzon, who had to go and figure out how to build this damn thing. And then Cahill turned around and said, okay, I want a budget and I want uh, a, a schedule and I want it on my desk by Monday. And they produce this thing. But of course, you know how meaningful this budget and the schedule are because they're just making stuff up at this point. But it's a nice low number. And so Cahill says, right, it's approved. Get digging. And they start construction right away. And so they start the construction. And as you can imagine, things go to hell. Uh, because they're, they don't even have a plan. And so at one point, they actually had to, uh, they'd already built a whole bunch of stuff, and they actually had to dynamite it and clear away the rubble and start over again, right? Because your and eventually came back and said, I've got it, I've got it, here's the solution. Well, you say, well, that's fine, they worked it out. Well, here's the problem. When you have a project whose budget is exploding and whose schedule is going up in flames because the Sydney Opera House ends up taking 14 years to build and goes 1,600% over budget. When that happens, it becomes a political scandal. When you have a political scandal, you have to have a scapegoat. 
They made Jorn Utzon the scapegoat for the failure of that project, and they fired him midway through. He leaves Australia in disgrace. He never actually sees his masterpiece with his own eyes. He lives in, into his 90s and never saw it with his own eyes. It's a terrible tragedy. But even worse, this stuck to him. It completely destroyed. He was an unknown architect. He had no track record. And then this disastrous budget blow-up happens. He was never given a commission for another major building in his life. So basically, the cost of screwing up this project management so badly was not just an immense pile of money from Australians. The cost is all the other masterpieces that Jornotsen would have built, but didn't because it was so badly mishandled. And so we have to recognize that every single time you see these, oh, well, budget went 300% over budget, uh, you know, and, and ho-hum, it's another, it's another white elephant. No, that's not ho-hum. Picture what has been lost. Picture what we won't be building because we screwed that up. You should get angry about that. I wonder too sometimes, Dan, if another unseen cost is socio-political. That is to say that one of the reasons our society feels like it's in something of a malaise is due to the sense that we can't get big things done and that that's contributed to a narrowing of our ambitions and a scaling back on our time horizons. In past generation, major projects like, say, the Apollo program or before that, the interstate highway system or closer to home, the construction of new universities in the 1960s and 1970s contributed to a positive some sense of the future. How do you think the issues that you discuss in the book are tied to some of these bigger political trends occurring in our society? Oh, I think that's absolutely correct. Um, one of the best manifestations of this is when somebody pops up and says, hey, we've got an idea for a big ambitious project. It'll be a wonderful thing. And here's the budget. Here's what we think it would cost. And everyone groans and they roll their eyes and say, we all know how these budgets go. You know, you're lowballing the figure. That cynicism, because let's name it for what it is, that cynicism is poisonous. And it's evident evidence of, I would suggest, exactly a, a wider illness, the illness that you're identifying, the sense that, you know, we can't do this. So why even bother trying? Um, and that's why it's so important and, and why we, you know, as much as we start by focusing on the sorry track record of big projects, we focus heavily on the success stories because they're happening, they have happened, and they're happening now, and they can happen more in future. Um, you know, one of the ones that we talk about near the end is uh, Denmark's experience with offshore wind uh, turbines. You know, uh, it was only 15 years ago, that there was essentially no offshore wind industry. Nobody had experience with it. Um, wind energy had been, you know, we've been producing electricity with wind for a very long time, but, you know, it hadn't really evolved. It wasn't cost effective. It would be very, very easy and tempting to say, you, you can't do anything with this. This is never going to amount to anything. Well, Denmark didn't do that. Fortunately, for, for frankly, Denmark and the world, they put huge resources into the development of an offshore wind industry and basically pioneered the technology. They advanced it incredibly rapidly. Their cost effectiveness is just, the figures are just breathtaking. And in the space of about 15 years, they went from this obscure 
experimental stuff to major source of electricity for the country. And they are the dominant player in one of the world's great new energy industries. Well, that's never going to happen if we have a defeatist attitude. Particularly in the government setting, Dan, the role of rules and regulations slowing down successful projects can sometimes be characterized as a conservative view rooted in skepticism about government or public choice economics or or whatever. But there's a strong case that progressives ought to be as concerned or even more concerned about some of these issues. Take, for instance, the goal of net zero emissions, which, if we're to have any chance of meeting that target by the middle of the century, is going to involve the massive building of all types of infrastructure, including electrification, mining, and and other clean energy projects. I get the sense that progressives are increasingly turning their mind to these issues, particularly in the U.S. What's your sense in Canada? Is there a constituency in progressive circles for a vision and agenda focused on what you might call building things? Yeah, and I think climate change, you're right to identify climate change as the the catalyst. it would be interesting. The counterfactual world in which we did not weren't faced with the threat of climate change would be interesting to see whether what the politics would be like in that. But in this world, you just have to say that phrase, climate change. Um, we need to build. We need to build on a scale uh, and with a speed, the likes of which haven't been seen since the Second World War. Uh, we need to churn out wind turbines the same way we churned out Liberty ships. Um, and with, with as much, with as much zeal and clarity of purpose. And I think that that is a message which, uh, resonates certainly among more pragmatic, uh, left-wingers. Uh, in fact, Seth Klein, uh, wrote a book, uh, which is basically the World War II analogy about bringing that zeal and passion for building to build out the infrastructure that we need to fight climate change. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Um, more needs to be done in that regard. Um, you still have people who, you know, uh, if one person raises an objection to the site of a wind turbine, you know, suddenly you can't build a wind turbine. Well, we've, we've got to get past that. Uh, uh, but, but yeah, no, so that's a big one. And the other, the other really big element at work here increasingly, I think, is housing. Um, Housing is a 19th century industry. Housing is a ridiculous, old-fashioned, inefficient, uh, ridiculous process. We still build things on site. One of the one of the themes of the book is the idea that whatever should be done can be done in a factory should be done in a factory. You build in the factory, and then you assemble. Uh, then you send that completed work to the site, and you assemble. You don't build on site. That is basically we, we talk about that being not uh, not construction entering the 21st century because that's not really 21st century technology that's 20th century technology. So it, it, construction needs to get with the 20th century, um, and then we can talk about really radically reducing the price of housing. We need to produce more housing, and the way to do that is to change construction. Uh, we haven't talked about modularity, but that's that's a really big piece of this. Modular housing is a phrase which is redolent of the 1970s. And people, when they hear modular housing, they think cheap and ugly. And, and, and understandably, because a lot of modular housing has been cheap and ugly, it doesn't have to be that way at all. Uh, there is so much that can be accomplished in that regard. 
Um, but we've got to shake up our mindsets. Let me ask you a penultimate question about social license. On one hand, most people listening, I suspect, would agree that projects ought to be completed on time and on budget. On the other hand, many would also be supportive of things like community consultations, particularly with indigenous communities, which is now essentially a constitutional obligation. How does your research touch on the role of consultation and community engagement? Is there a way to do it well but fast? Or given today's expectations of inclusivity and broad engagement, do we just have to live with projects that may take longer and cost more? That's a really interesting question. And I suspect some of the answer is going to be a very grim yes to the latter part of your question. Um, the When you look at the statistics on uh, budgets, but budgets and schedules are typically uh, produced, you know, you do your consultation, then you come up with your budgets and schedules. So if you have a long, laborious consultation prior to, it will not be reflected in uh, the budget and schedule. Um, so I can't answer your question with as much as concretely and precisely as I would like, but let me illustrate with, uh, in fact, to go back to T5, uh, the terminal at Heathrow, uh, for the construction of that terminal, um, the government engaged in the longest consultations in British history, brutal, painful, (laughs) you know, you don't build in Britain big stuff in Britain, idly or lightly. Uh, so it was a long, painful, difficult, knockdown, drag out process. And at the end of the process, by the way, uh, they did not have everybody on board. You will never have a giant project, ambitious project that has literally everybody on board. Um, we have to be prepared for that. We have to be prepared to say, well, you know, that's democracy and we're moving on. Um, that being said, one essential element of the project it, that made it work was the leadership of uh, the T5 project was very determined from the very beginning to be as transparent and communicative as possible. And so the construction manager, um, a- an engineer named Andrew Wollstenholm, uh, spent an enormous amount of his time just talking with people. Just saying, here's what we're doing. Here's what the stage is, where the, where the project is at. Uh, you know, what are your concerns? I want to hear what you're thinking. He, talking with people who are pro-project, people who are anti-project, talking, transparency. Um, from a Canadian perspective, and here I'm, 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 I've tried to avoid editorializing. I will now get on my soapbox and editorialize. Um, Canadians don't do transparency well. Uh, Our default in government is no. Our default is you can't have that information. We've got to get over that. Transparency is the great trust builder. And for big projects to happen, you've got to build trust. So transparency is absolutely essential. Final question. What do you think of the argument that one of the main reasons that projects seem to take longer and cost more is that we've become collectively more risk-averse, that well-intended processes and rules around social licenses we've been discussing, or safety, or any number of interests that in of themselves may be justified, have contributed to an overall environment in which it just takes longer and costs more to get things done. Have we, in effect, gotten the trade-off between efficiency and other important priorities wrong? And if so, how do we restore a kind of collective sense of confidence and overcome this risk aversion that may be part of the explanation behind what your book is documenting. 
Yeah. Uh, so first, I think it's very fair to say that, I mean, yes, is the, the, <laughs> the, the short answer. Um, yes, we are more risk averse. Uh, we just have to look at, for example, environmental regulation. The very fact that you have environmental reviews, the very fact that you're not allowed to just dump whatever happens to be in your barrels into the river is a level of risk aversion that was not there in the past, to which one can only say, good. Um, you know, <laughs> that is a good thing. I think we have learned from experience um, to be more cautious, for example, about environmental effects, because we understand now that they can have knock-on effects that we don't see now. We've learned to be more cautious, uh, and that's all to the good. Um, the question is whether that risk aversion goes too far in particular circumstances. Um, and I would be loath one of the things that drives me, sorry, I, I just said I, I, I don't want to editorialize, but I'm, I'm going to editorialize a second time. Um, people often talk about regulation as if it were like this fungible substance. You know, we need more regulation. We need less regulation. It's not goo, okay? It's not fungible. Um, some regulations are smart and important and valuable. Some regulations are stupid. Um so if you want to examine the regulations in particular instances and you say to yourself, look, we need to build things more, let's be, let's conduct a rigorous review looking for regulations that we can reduce without harmful impact. That's a very sensible approach, but I would not support some sort of blanket. We need to repeal regulation or anything like that. I think that's ridiculous. That's number one point. Number two point is, you know, risk and risk aversion, they, they depend on what exactly you're dealing with. Um, so, for example, uh, if you are building a giant project in response to uh, the greatest environmental threat of our century, climate change, and you sincerely believe that climate change is a danger to our species and all the other species on this planet, it may even threaten our civilization, as I do, I believe that, um, then you should be prepared to adjust your scale of acceptable risk, right? Um, you should be prepared to accept greater cost, and that includes risk, in order to try to mitigate that threat. So, for example, with nuclear, just to use nuclear as a, the issue of safety, uh, environmentalists, not all, but many environmentalists have been anti-nuclear because of their safety concerns. I don't share those concerns, but there they are. If you have those concerns and you've had those concerns for decades, but along comes climate change and you say, hey, we're facing an existential threat. Um, well, you should be prepared to adjust your calculation, right? Because if this is an effective tool for dealing with the climate change threat, but that means increased risk of the safety concerns that you have, then, well, you need to ask yourself, does the climate change threat rise to the level where it now means that those risks are acceptable? We should always remember that risk, what is an acceptable risk, varies according to circumstance. This is why I find I, I, it's a bit of a struggle for me to talk about these issues in the abstract because I'm a big believer in the particular. Um, it's the concrete details that matter to the calculation. 
but we should always be prepared to ask ourselves, what is an acceptable risk? And that is determined by the particular circumstances of what we're trying to do. Well, that's precisely the kind of insight and precision one can find in the book, How Big Things Get Done, the surprising factors that determine the fate of every project from home renovations to space exploration and everything in between. Dan Gardner, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks, John. It was fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.